Hello, my name is Deborah Sidaway and thank you for joining me again as we continue the story of divorce, a series exploring the stories of the bigamists, the bastards, the feminists and the fornicators who helped shape the law of divorce in England as it exists today. In the last episode, we explored the first divorce to be obtained by a woman when Mrs. Jane Addison succeeded in divorcing her husband who had been having an affair with her own sister. You may recall that it was Lord Thurlow who induced the Lords to pass the bill granting Jane her divorce. One of the arguments he used to persuade their Lordships was the great improbability that any case so flagrant would ever occur again. But on 15 March 1831, he was to be proven wrong when a wife presented a petition to Parliament for a divorce against her husband in circumstances that were depressingly familiar. Today's episode will look at the story, a her story, of that wife. Her name was Mrs. Louisa Turton. Before we get to her story, however, let's talk about numbers. Between 1670, when Lord Ruse was granted his divorce, and 1857, when the first Divorce Act was passed, and we will get to that in the series soon, there were 325 successful divorce petitions. Only four of those petitions were made by women. This means that of the total divorces granted by Parliament before the Divorce Act came into force, only around 1% of them were made by women. The reason that so few women were able to divorce is because that upon her marriage, a woman all but ceased to exist in the eyes of the law, her very being as an independent individual swallowed by her husband. She was absorbed into him. They were joined in holy matrimony, became one flesh, and that flesh was male. Only the husband could make contracts, only the husband could own property or bring an action in a court of law. A wife struggled to have her voice heard. And as we saw in Jane Addison's case, the very idea that a husband could be sued by his wife was loathsome to the lords that wielded justice. It would take something momentous for the lords to shift from their view that a woman should not be able to divorce her husband. In Jane Addison's case, it was not her husband's infidelity that would free her from the chains of her marriage, but the fact that her husband had been having an affair with her own sister that tipped the scales of justice in her favour, because to sleep with the sister of your wife was deemed to be a vile and incestuous intercourse. And so it was for Louisa Turton, who would go on to achieve a divorce from her husband, only the second divorce granted to a woman petitioner, some three decades after Mrs. Jane Addison achieved her divorce. And once more, this divorce had adulterous incest at the heart of the fractured marriage, compounded by the husband getting his wife's sister pregnant, not just once, not twice, but three times. When the case came before the consistory court, the sorry history of the marriage was laid out for the court. Miss Louisa Brown married Mr. Thomas Edward Mitchell Turton, the only son of Sir Thomas Turton of Starborough Castle in 1812. Mr. Turton was educated at Eton and called to the bar in 1818. 
1822, Mr. Turton bought a bond of the East India Company for £1,000 to practice as a barrister in Calcutta. Husband and wife were all set to travel to India together when, overcome with emotion, Mr. Turton confessed to his wife that her unmarried sister, Miss Adeline Brown, was pregnant. He was the father. On hearing this news, a horrified Louisa was determined to let her husband go to India without her. At this point, Mr. Turton fell to his knees, beseeching his wife to accompany him, promising her that if she went with him to India, taking with them her pregnant sister, so as to avoid a scandal in England, that Adeline would be sent back to England once the child had been delivered. Mr. Turton was concerned that if the fact that he had impregnated his wife's sister became public knowledge, he would be disgraced and dismissed from the bar, no longer able to make a living. The understanding between husband and wife was duly made. However, once Adeline had given birth to a daughter, it appeared that Mr. Turton had a change of heart and went back on the promise he made to his wife to send Adeline away. Enraged, Louisa booked her own passage from India to return to her home country, but for some reason known only to herself, finding some compassion in her heart to stay long enough to tend to her husband during a dangerous illness that he had contracted. Once this crisis had passed, however, she boarded a ship, leaving her adulterous husband and her traitorous sister and their bastard child behind in India. Criminal intercourse, as the court would later hear, was resumed between Mr. Turton and Adeline, and she went on to have two more children with her brother-in-law. Matters came to a head when Mr. Turton, Adeline Brown, and their children returned to England, taking up residence in Curzon Street in Mayfair, living together as though they were man and wife. Mrs. Turton began the process of trying to free herself from her poisoned marriage, taking her grievance first to the ecclesiastical courts. There, Mr. Turton did not bother to deny the adultery and instead tried to cast the blame on his beleaguered wife, arguing that her conduct amounted to condemnation of his relationship with her sister and that she was therefore disentitled to a remedy from the courts. All this because, according to him, Louisa knew of the warm attachment between her husband and sister for some years, and nevertheless took no measures to prevent its effect, but acquiesced and connived in the adultery. If this was not awful enough for Louisa to hear, her husband also insinuated that she herself had been guilty of adultery with a Mr Pemberton, even if this accusation related to conduct which occurred after Louisa had already left her unfaithful wretch of a husband. Despite Mr. Turton's arguments, Louisa got her separation from the church courts before taking her divorce petition to Parliament. But her solicitors struggled to find Mr. Turton, as it appeared he was on his way back to India, leaving instructions with his proctor to do whatever was necessary on his behalf. In the House of Lords, Louise's bill passed without even a murmur of objection, particularly as Mr. Turton did not make an appearance to defend himself. The act freeing Mrs. Turton from her marriage gave her liberty to marry again, with the house expressing its condemnation of the husband 
by ensuring that he would never be able to marry Adeline and that their children would forever be tainted by their status as bastards and be subject to all the disabilities, privations and restrictions which any child or children born out of lawful wedlock is. Once more, the sins of the father were well and truly visited on the children. What is really interesting about Louisa Turton's case is that it expressed the horror of the house over the very notion that a man would sleep with his sister-in-law because, in their view, the tie of affinity that subsisted between a husband and his wife's sister was, according to J.F. McQueen, a barrister writing in 1842, a tie of a very delicate and sacred character a tie which by reason of the innocence and confidence accompanying it had the effect of putting their parties very much off their guard with each other and the conduct of the man therefore by whom that tender tie had been broken called for particular condemnation this is why their lordships passed mrs turton's divorce bill to mark in the strongest manner their sense of outrage the reason i find this aspect of the case so intriguing is because this horror of even just the idea that a man would sleep with his sister-in-law that the house expressed in Louisa Turton's case is a horror that filtered through English society and may be one of the reasons why Charles Dickens, when he separated from his wife Catherine in 1858, was so very keen to disassociate himself from any suggestion that he had engaged in any inappropriate relationship with his wife's sister Georgina, who had lived with Dickens and his wife Catherine and their children for many, many years. So incensed was Dickens over, in his words, the misrepresentations most grossly false, most monstrous and most cruel involving not only me, but innocent persons dear to my heart that he went as far as printing a personal statement in his own magazine, Household Words, circulating his truth, decrying the abominably false slanders and whispered rumours about him, and accusing anyone who repeated the rumours as lying, as willfully and as foully as it is possible for any false witness to lie before heaven and earth. So what happened to the Turtons following their divorce? Thomas Turton would go on to have five daughters and three sons with Adeline, all of them bastards, and when Adeline died in Calcutta in 1841, her obituary refers to her as the wife of Thomas Turton, although, of course, they could never have legally married. By 1848, Turton was bankrupt, and the court ordered the sale of all his real and personal estate and effects to pay off his creditors. At this point, I have not yet been able to trace what happened to Louisa Turton following her divorce from her husband. I hope that she was able to build her life again, following the monstrous betrayal that she suffered at the hands of her husband and her sister. But she leaves her footprints in history as the second woman to achieve a divorce in England. There would only be two further women who would be able to accomplish this feat, and there is but little information about their cases. What little I have been able to piece together of their miserable marriages and their quests for freedom from those marriages, I will turn to next time in the story of divorce. Thank you for listening. My name is Deborah Sidaway, and remember, you can follow the podcast series
on Twitter on at Story of Divorce.